You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about constipation. Joining me is Dr. Jennifer Webster, a fellow in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thanks so much for joining me today. No problem. So let's get started with the basics. We all have an idea or a gestalt of what constipation is, but what are the actual diagnostic criteria to meet the definition of constipation? So the published size diagnosis is Rome 4 criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and the definition of functional constipation is really defined by symptoms based on the child. And so they say there that the kid has to be over four years old. Okay. There is diagnoses for kids less than six months old called infant dyskesia. And the only definitions there are really just discomfort with passage of stool mm-hmm. um, and taking a long time over 10 minutes to get a stool out, mm-hmm. but no other definitions. Okay. For kids over four years of age, all of these fall into the category of having to last over two months. <clears throat> they need to have at least two of these for over two months and be over four years of age, which are two or fewer defecations per week, at least one episode of fecal incontinence per week, history of retentive posturing or holding, mm-hmm. um, history of painful or hard bowel movements, presence of large fecal mass in the rectum on rectal exam, or a history of a large diameter of stools, which obstruct the toilet. So usually asking if they clog the toilet is a good way to get at that. So any of those, um, you have to have at least two for over a two-month period of time. Great. That gives us some frame of reference. Um, You did talk about how it's harder in the kids less than six months. Um, So how do the diagnostic criteria in that range differ, or do they differ, for formula versus breastfed babies? There are no um, publicized definitions that differ, but overall the average number of stools per day in a breastfed infant is about three versus a formula-fed infant, which is about two. That study happened over 30 years ago, so Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but that's the only guidelines that we have to go by. Um, But based on the Rome 4 criteria, which we use for functional constipation, there is no difference. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good to know. And we see tons of toddlers who end up being constipated because the typical toddler diet is high in starches and low in fruits and vegetables. So what tricks do you have to help us with toddlers increasing their dietary fiber? Yes, (laughs) I agree. Um, So, you know, and the other big problem actually with toddlers is they don't drink enough water. Right. Um, So even if they're getting enough fiber, sometimes they're just not counteracting with enough water during Mm -hmm. the day. Um, So the tricks are not really exciting tricks that I have. The... Dosing of fiber in a, in a kid is usually age plus five grams per day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can use fiber gummies in kids who are toddler age. Most of them come in about three to five gram doses, okay. and those are over the counter. Obviously, avoiding gummies is important. And so if you can do other mm-hmm. uh, ways to, to get extra fiber in, like fiber one bars or cereals with extra fiber, mm-hmm. that's probably the best. Unfortunately, 
Most of these have lots of sugar in them, mm -hmm. um, but lots of kids won't eat vegetables, so that's mm -hmm. really it for alternatives. Yeah. Sometimes in terms of the sugar, you know, you mentioned fiber one, they make cookies and things like that. So I always say, like, if you were going to give your kid a cookie anyway, then right. maybe choose the fiber one. Absolutely. Because at least and there's fiber two. And it's like, if they were going to have that sugar, at least they have fiber with it. And, and same with cereal. You right. know, they have lots of cereals out there. Um, the fiber one bars can range anywhere from like four to nine grams of fiber mm -hmm. per serving. So just keep an eye on the total dosage. But mm -hmm. as long as kids are drinking water, going over the fiber recommendations is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. um, so if they drink, if they eat a lot of cereal, there's sweet cereals even for fiber one. Mm -hmm. And the, the granola bars are, are pretty good. Mm -hmm. Kids okay. like them. I like the water tip though, because we don't think about that sometimes. Yeah. So what are some of the physical exam findings that we should look out for in a patient who has constipation? So thinking about functional constipation or um, constipation secondary to withholding, which mm -hmm. is the most, by far, the most common right. constipation, um, the you know hints on an abdominal exam would be actually being able to feel stool, and, mm -hmm. and it's usually in the left lower quadrant. If you're feeling it higher up on the left side, that's pretty significant constipation. Mm -hmm. And then... A rectal exam is typically needed, especially if you have a kid who leaks stool. Mm -hmm. And that helps you understand the tone. Mm -hmm. You also get to see if the position of the anus is correct. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of evaluating for underlying anatomical abnormalities at the same time as saying, okay, are, is their rectum really dilated, mm -hmm. which would be a sign of long-term withholding, mm -hmm. versus a kid who leaks without a dilated rectum, perhaps there's some anatomical issue that they're having trouble pushing through. Mm -hmm. um, and then other physical exam findings thinking outside the box, you know, growth parameters, do they have celiac disease or mm -hmm. thyroid disease? Even inflammatory bowel disease can present as constipation sometimes if they have, you know, an area of stricturing higher up in their colon or kids who have perianal um, inflammatory bowel disease mm -hmm. will hold because it hurts. Right. Um, thyroid exam, kids with hypothyroid have constipation very frequently, a neurologic exam. One thing that, you know, you do on a regular exam is look for a sacral dimple or uh -huh. a tuft of hair. Right. Um, lower extremity tone also could give you a hint that maybe there's some spinal cord abnormalities at the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, just overall, like looking for lesions or anything like that. Of course, there are, you know, the rare occasions that kids hold for because of sexual abuse or some mm -hmm. sort of abuse. And so looking in, in that area is really important. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, similar to that, in terms of kind of red flag signs, what things would raise a concern for Hirschsprung's um, or malabsorption or something that's not functional constipation? Yeah. Um, I think I, I touched a little bit on those before. So there is the North uh, American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, which we finally call NASPGAN, <laughs> has... Um, guidelines for this with alarm symptoms listed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's good to refer to. Um, I think when you split these things up into categories, when you think of Hirschsprung's disease, the classic question is, did you pass meconium within the first 48 hours of life? Right. It's not a hundred percent indication of Hirschsprung's disease, but it captures most patients with mm -hmm. Hirschsprung's disease if they did not. Yeah. Um, constipation in the first month of life is really unusual. And by constipation at that age, I mean hard stools, not mm -hmm. necessarily delayed passage because often in breastfed babies, right. they don't have a stool for a long period of time. Family history, of course. Abdominal distension would be a sign of a malabsorption process mm -hmm. like celiac disease, but also 
Hirschmarck's disease if you can't pass things through. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, if you want to think of obstruction or something like that, bilious vomiting, which you can sometimes see in Hirschsprung's disease. Mm -hmm. um, we talked before about perianal fistulas in kids with Crohn's disease, um, and then tone, lower extremity mm -hmm. tone or strength, as well as sacral dimples or tufts in neurologic mm -hmm. disease. And, um, and then, you know, failure to thrive. That's really the big one for, mm -hmm. for thinking of malabsorptive type processes mm -hmm. like, like celiac disease. Um, certainly those kids can have distended bellies and constipation, but they're often also having a hard time growing. Yeah. That's when I would think about of those things. Those are big red flags. Great. Good to know. So switching gears a little bit, talking about treatment. So we often use Miralax as our first line outpatient treatment for constipation that failed dietary interventions with fiber. But this is not on formulary for children less than 10 kilos. So what's our best option for treating these, these tinier infants who we think need a little extra help? So... Um, always go back to like what your mom and grandma said and mm -hmm. like prune juice is actually mm -hmm. a great option. There's right. no dosing out there for prune juice. Mm -hmm. You know, I typically say to mix it a little bit with water so they're not just like getting straight juice, yeah. which is more of the pediatrician side in me. It's not dangerous. Mm -hmm. It just feels like you shouldn't give babies juice. Mm -hmm. Um, and then lactulose is the other one that we commonly use. Mm -hmm. Um, the dosing is one to two grams per kilo per day. I mean, it's kind of difficult to dose, mm -hmm. um, so usually I just sort of round to an, a, an appropriate five mLs or something like that. Right. Um, and, and you can give that twice a day. Um, and then the last thing would really be like glycerin suppositories in a kid this age. Mm -hmm. I usually only use them if it's been many days without a stool or they seem really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but I try to stick with like lactulose or prune juice to start. Great. Good. And so for the older child maybe who says they don't want to take Miralax or they say that they tried it and it didn't work, where do you typically go next? So there are other options for stool softeners out there. Miralax is an osmotic laxative. It pulls water in and, and makes stool soft. Mm -hmm. um, Colace or mineral oil, those are more like lubricants, mm -hmm. but they do work sometimes. Um, milk of magnesia is a good softener. Mm -hmm. um, those are also medications that children don't like to take to take because yeah. they all pretty they, they just taste bad. Right. Um, I think if a kid is saying that the Miralax isn't working, like compliance is always the first question. Mm -hmm. You have to drink Miralax relatively quickly and mm -hmm. in a in a decent amount of liquid. So we usually say eight ounces. I find it almost impossible to get a kid to drink eight ounces in one sitting. Mm -hmm. So I usually say four ounces. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and I tell them they need to finish it within five to 10 minutes. Okay. If you're not drinking it that quickly, if it's like, oh, I mixed my water and the, I drank it over the whole day, I mean, right. that's not going to work. Hmm. Um, and then the other, you know, key here to not working is, do they actually also have a history of fecal impaction? Mm -hmm. In which case, Miralax alone probably won't help. Right. And, you know, you have to think about adding a stimulant laxative to help them squeeze out if they're not doing that mm -hmm. on their own. So sometimes you'll add Senna on top of your Miralax before switching to another softener. Exactly, especially if they've ever had a history of leakage or on rectal exam, they have a large amount of stool in their rectum. Mm -hmm. A lot of these kids get so distended that they don't even sense stool in there anymore. Mm -hmm. And right. so they don't know they're supposed to go to the bathroom. Right. And the stimulant laxatives really counteract that because mm -hmm. they make them cramp a little bit and then mm -hmm. they'll go and sit. For like the younger school-age child, do you recommend parents then have them kind of sit and do a timed, not timed, but sort of, reminders throughout the day of maybe after you eat breakfast, maybe sit and try to pass some poop? 
Yeah. So actually one of the most helpful modifications to a child's life who has constipation is sitting. Mm -hmm. It's the one treatment that I like, no matter what they have to do. Mm -hmm. So I, um, just like adults, Mm -hmm. (laughs) kids have certain times of day that they usually pass stool and it's often after a feed, Mm -hmm. um, babies and big kids. Mm -hmm. Um, so I always tell them to sit before school because kids don't like to poop at school. And so just see if you can get something out usually after they come home and have a snack and Mm -hmm. then after dinner. Mm -hmm. And every kid I see in the office with constipation has to sit three times a day. I don't have them sit for more than 10 minutes. Five minutes is usually the best. Mm -hmm. Um, And I usually recommend that they don't bring in books or iPads or phones because Mm -hmm. they're just sitting on a toilet and they're not trying to push. And those things are really distracting. And so... Mm -hmm. Your goal really is to sit and to try to push out a stool for five minutes. Okay. That's good to know about not having the distractions. Yeah. I don't feel like I've, I knew that before. So. <laughs> um, so while we're talking about Miralax, many parents are concerned about the safety after a lot of recent media attentions. Can you explain what evidence there is for or against using Miralax in children? That's a great question. (laughs) So um, as many of the medications that we use in kids, it's not FDA approved for children under 18 years old. So I kind of defer this answer to what the NASP again, the the North American Society for Gastroenterology, Hepatology, Nutrition had came out with. Um, And really, ultimately, we do not think that there are serious side effects of Miralax. There are no reported serious side effects in the FDA. and for Miralax or other similar PEG-350, those are the 3350 mm-hmm. um, products, um, there are multiple adult studies as far as the efficacy and safety of Miralax, and they, they are all very positive, and mm-hmm. every study says that it's safe to use even in large doses. Um, and really the only reported side effects ever has been diarrhea, bloating, or nausea, which mm-hmm. are, seem relatively right. straightforward. So we believe it's a safe medication, Um, and ultimately it is a choice of the parents and there are alternatives out there. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're always happy to counsel on alternatives, Mm -hmm. but for us right now, we continue to use it. Mm -hmm. Where did the concerns come from all of a sudden? It's not new actually. Mm -hmm. Um, similar reports have come out a few years ago. I think, I think it was in about 2014, Mm -hmm. um, where families thought perhaps Miralax was causing some behavioral Mm -hmm. issues. Our theory is that children with behavioral issues often have some sensory integration disorders Mm -hmm. and have problems with the feeling of stool coming Mm -hmm. out. And so perhaps that came first, Mm -hmm. although we have no evidence to say one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, But the news report was parental reports. It Mm -hmm. was purely parents who went to the news station and talked about their experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about evidence, there is no scientific evidence of that occurring mm-hmm. and there are no reports through the FDA. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say. Right. Great. Good to know that we can keep going forward with Miralax in families who want to use it. So. Yes. Great. Is there ever an indication for laboratory tests in the evaluation of constipation? Um, I want to say no, but that's not true. <laughs> um, usually, usually no. Right. You know, so going back to all of those red flags that we talked about, if mm-hmm. you have a big thyroid or you're not growing, mm-hmm. if you have perianal fistulas or lots of blood when you're stooling, mm-hmm. um, you know, those are really the big ones, honestly. Right. I'm trying to think of Celiac. other reasons. So then you can thyroid. order things like, right, right, CBC is not a terrible one to look at. If they're very anemic, you might 
it might also make you think back about what's their diet and think mm -hmm. more about their dairy congestion, mm -hmm. which might be a cause of their constipation. Right. And then lead is the other one that we often think mm -hmm. about. Um, I, those are checked relatively regularly. And so I only check lead levels in kids who have had high lead levels on screening mm -hmm. in the past, but mm -hmm. it is something to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah. So for poor growth, and constipation, I think of thyroid studies and celiac disease. Mm -hmm. For um, blood in the stool or perianal disease, I think of inflammatory markers. Mm -hmm. And then for other kids that you just feel like something maybe isn't quite right, you can think about a CBC to see if they're anemic mm -hmm. or also lead levels. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. about it. Especially if it's an older child. Some of these kids with behavior problems who have pica I think about lead, but I also wonder, like, are they eating other things that are... Yeah binding them up. That's a really good point. Paper and things like that. Although I guess paper has fiber in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I wonder sometimes about lead in those um, kids with behavior problems who are yeah, a little bit older. Definitely. So once children are stooling regularly, we did our job, everything's moving through with the medications. How can we taper them off? Do we need to taper them off? And how do we help them just continue to succeed without needing to be on Miralax for the rest of their life? It's a really good question. It's essentially one I get every single time I put a patient on medication. Mm -hmm. um, they sh shouldn't be long-term necessarily, or they don't have to be long-term necessarily, but there are certain kids that need to be on them for quite some time. I have this saying that lots of people say, which is it takes as long as it took to get constipated for you to get unconstipated. Mm. So if you have a kid who's been constipated for six years, which we see very frequently, mm -hmm. it's going to take a long time right. for that to get better. And those kids usually have to stay on medications that whole time. Mm -hmm. There are no evidence-based guidelines about weaning or tapering off these medications. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of intuitive. If a kid has been doing really well for about three to four months and you know, without any leakage, if they were leaking before, or if they're perfectly stooling once a day, every mm -hmm. day, and it's soft and it's easy for it to come out, mm -hmm. then you might think, okay, well, wow, it's been a good amount of time of them doing well. Let's think of cutting back. Mm -hmm. I don't have an exact guideline for cutting back. I mm -hmm. think if they're on a stimulant, stimulants are always the first to go. You can do that in a slow manner by taking a day away at a time. Mm -hmm. Often we'll say, take a break on the weekend and see how you do. If mm -hmm. you get backed up by Monday, then maybe you're not quite ready. Right. Um, and if you do well, then you can take away another day until you get to none. Mm -hmm. And then for your softener, usually Miralax, you can cut doses. I'll usually have them cut half the dose. And mm -hmm. if they do fine on half the dose, then just take it off. Right. But there are no perfect guidelines for this. Mm -hmm. And then the biggest thing is they, they don't have to be treated with medicines their whole lives, but they certainly have to continue their behaviors. Mm -hmm. So they need to continue sitting two to three times a day. You have to use a stool when you sit. They should mm -hmm. probably keep a diary, especially when they first wean off their medications. Mm -hmm. And then of course, good water and fiber intake, right. just so that they don't have constipation again. Right. Great. So for those who are in the CHOP system, you have now a constipation action plan, which is in the letters tab. How do we find that? You just type in constipation and it comes up? Yeah. Thanks for the shout out. <laughs> um, so it's called GI constipation action plan letter. It's in the letters tab. Mm -hmm. It's in its first round right now with lots of really exciting updates coming, mm -hmm. which helps choose the appropriate medications and doses of, of medications. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be a really great tool, not only for families to take home so that they know how to treat their kids when their constipation is better and worse, mm -hmm. but also for 
the providers who are using it to help guide which medications and the doses. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really excited about it. It looks really nice in there and it's very straightforward for families. Yeah, great. And it's not only a good guide for us, but I think because we don't see these kids that often in clinic usually, and sometimes maybe we've made the problem better and then we don't see them for a year in the school-age child's case. So it's nice for the parent to have something that tells them kind of what to do when things are getting worse and then when they get better so that the parent can titrate themselves a little bit and that we don't have to necessarily be seeing them in the office constantly for something that um, really could be managed at home. Yeah, absolutely. And all these medications are over the counter. Mm -hmm. Most of them are also covered by Medicaid. So, mm -hmm. you know, being prescribed is also very appropriate. The other really big benefit is that maybe they did come to CGI and we did the action plan and then mm -hmm. they call their pediatrician and then, you know, nurse triage on the phone can refer to what their plan should yeah. be if the family has lost it. So I think, um, it empowers the families to treat their their kids at home, knowing that these medications are safe and over the counter, mm -hmm. and also has a very established plan for all the providers mm -hmm. involved in their care. Great, and for those in this CHOP system, but also elsewhere, there is a clinical pathway at CHOP for constipation for the emergency room, but there are certainly applications for the outpatient setting there as well. So that's publicly available. We will link to it on our website as well so that you can find it a little bit easier. But if you look at chop.edu and search the clinical pathways, you can also find the constipation pathway uh, there. Yep. So yep. has great dosages for medications as well on that pathway. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's good to know that um, we are doing a good job, I guess, <laughs> yes. in primary care of managing something that for the most part is managed in the outpatient setting and that we can keep doing so and that there are some good tools out there to help guide us along the way. We know obviously that CHOP GI is happy to see these patients when they become out of our realm of expertise and to provide consults. So thanks for doing that and seeing all our patients. Thanks. Thanks for letting me do this and, you know, talk about constipation, which is my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.